you are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Daniel Howitt's interviews with the director for Summer of Soul, Amir Questlove Thompson, and the editor, Joshua L. Pearson. As soon as you move down, we can start. Welcome to the Harlem Culture Festival. Here in the Harlem House. Questlove, thanks so much for taking time to talk with me about your film, Summer of Soul. Let's just start from the top. How did you hear about all this extensive unused footage of the Harlem Cultural Festival? I think the real question is, when did I believe it actually happened? <laughs> um, you know, the, the first part of that answer is in Tokyo um, for the first time in 1997, uh, my translator or on press day, my translator takes me to a place called the Soul Train Cafe, which is kind of like a, I, I joke that it's its its like an olive garden with uh, 20 uh, monitors, installations in the, in the walls when you eat your food. And there's a whole bunch of uh, soul artifacts playing. You know, there's Otis Redding over here and, you know, Aretha Franklin over there and that sort of thing. Um, and I saw maybe three minutes of the Sly and the Family Stone performance from like camera two, which was like far away. So I couldn't see the 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 faces of, of the participants. But um, I remember seeing the word festival on the wall. So I instantly thought, oh, well, Europe throws festivals. So, I, you know, I thought it was maybe like Montreux Jazz Festival or like Nice Jazz Festival. Like I knew it was somewhere in Europe because at that point in 97, with the exception of Lollapalooza, um, Farm Aid, you know, America really wasn't a, a place for festivals, you, you'd think. But, um, you know, besides Woodstock and really ending with Altamont and a, the occasional Live Aid, you, you didn't know about festivals. So um, 25 years later, backstage at The Tonight Show, uh, these two gentlemen are trying to convince me that 300,000 people in Harlem saw this music festival with Stevie Wonder and, and the Staple Singers and Sly and the Family Stone and all these acts. And, you know, I'm Googling and I'm seeing nothing. You know, I'm like, running, I'll be right back, guys. And like looking at my phone. No, that didn't happen. Um, so and I called people, called reputable people like, you know, hey, Nelson George, uh, have you known about this thing? No, I never heard of it. So. Um, so as a result, um, I really didn't believe it was happening. I was really trying to just get out of there and be dismissed. Oh, yeah, have my people call your people. See you guys. And um, they came back the next week with 40 hours worth of footage on a hard drive. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, God, this really did happen. And then, you know, I went through a phase where I just, went through a lot of doubt like wait why do they want me to do this like i've never done this before why would you why would you guys want me to do this and um i gotta say this, this is probably one of the greatest things i ever embarked on in my life second to getting the nerve to tell my dad i'm not going to juilliard i got a record deal instead so <laughs> Well, well, that's what I was, wanted to ask you. How did you know that you needed to make this movie? You know, that this wasn't just a project for you to produce or advise, but this needed to be your story to tell. 
Well, this this goes to show you that sometimes um, people put themselves in the position where they don't practice what they preach. Because the irony is that the year that they approached me, I just released a book called Creative Quest, where I encourage people to actively um, step into uncomfortable territory and pivot into the unknown. And, you know, at the time, I was I was really knee deep in that, like, you know, to leave my comfort zone, like the, the year that we accepted the Tonight Show, the roots were high on the hog. We were making the most money we've ever made as a group. You know, why would we ever want to turn our backs on that, on all those millions to do like a late night shit? comedy show? Really? That's what you want to do? So starting with there, then suddenly I have like a, an interest in the food world. Do I belong in the food world? Well, let me see. Oh, you want me to teach college? Uh, I could do that. You want me to write books? Uh, okay. More books? Okay. You know, score a movie? Da, da, da. Like I started doing all these things I've never done before. But however, when it came time to direct a movie, like <laughs> suddenly I was like, wait, oh, put the brakes on. Um, and I don't know. I think what was overwhelming to me was that I instantly recognized, you know, when I look at the footage, I started making excuses. I was like, well, the this must be like crappy camel work or the sound has to be horrible. Like there gotta be some reason why this film never came out. Like, why is it on my doorstep? Like, you're trying to tell me that in the last 47 years, like not one person said, you know what? Let's green light this thing. Um, and unfortunately, that was the story. But I, I will say that um, probably the, the, the overwhelming aspect was the fact that I this was my chance to correct history. And, um, and this was more than just like, oh, this is Questlove's directorial debut. This was like, you get, a, you get one chance to, to do something, to exonerate and validate black people, something that rarely gets to happen with us, be it justice or just anything, don't drop the ball. And I'm one of those people that will like, you know, the first time I won a Grammy, I was like, do not trip on Erica's dress. Do not trip on Erica's dress. Do not. And I tripped. So <laughs> uh, I, I'm glad I was talked out of it. I, I think, you know, my I thank God for my girlfriend to, tell me look look dude get over yourself you know you can do this just correct history already you know so i did awesome well you know i'm, I'm talking to your editor uh joshua pearson is soon as well mm -hmm. tell me about working with him what that partnership looked like and, and where you started okay so you know um my my producer that i worked with joseph patel um you know, he and I are are drenched and baptized in hip hop. Joseph wrote my first cover story for Rap Pages back in 1997. So we were both in a whole nother uh, lifetime, like 25 years ago. And, um, you know, I told him, well, first of all, he told me, like, okay, so how do you how do you see yourself telling the story? And I was like, well, I guess there, there's there's a certain rhythm that I can't explain that I when I sequence my records, when I put shows together, 
he's like, well, t- talk me through the process. Like, how do you put a DJ set together? How do you put Jay-Z's show together? How do you put, like, give me examples of how you put shows together. And, you know, I tell him it's like a CSI kind of a beautiful mind situation where, you know, you have this vision board in your head. And normally I, I work backwards. I, I want to, I want, I start my, what, what, what's my last 10 minutes? Like, what do I want the audience walking away with? Uh, what's my climax? What's my beginning? So the first thing I did was, you know, I sat with this 40 hour footage on constant loop in my, in my bedroom, my, my kitchen, anywhere I had a monitor, uh, at work, at home, this thing was on constant loop. Even when I slept, I never turned the television off. Uh, and if I saw something that really gave me goosebumps or like, whoa, like a whoa moment, I used it. And then once we got 30 of those things together, you know, I, I told Joseph that I think it's really important that we have an editor that has a sense of rhythm. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but whenever I start any project, and mostly I'm talking like Roots Records, you know, every creative imagines that he makes a mind-blowing project the same way that the mind-blowing project that brought him to creativity was. And so for me, a, a 16-year-old walking to his, 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 his uh, short order cook job at our fast food restaurant, the day that Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold His Back comes out, like that album is a North star to me because essentially, I mean, basically you're, you are, you're listening. I'm listening to my dad's entire record collection sort of spit back to me and filtered through hip hop, you know? So all those things I used to dismiss at home, like those old Otis Redding and James Brown records and those old Motown records. Suddenly I'm like, wait, dad listens to this. Dad listens to this. So suddenly his his whole entire record collection is coming to light through Public Enemy. And they, I mean, they're sort of like Jackson Pollock. They take paint and they just throw it at the wall and throw it at the wall and throw it at the wall. And then it becomes, then you see the vision. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but that's kind of where this movie wound up going. And at the time, I just wanted an editor that, had this sense of rhythm that was sort of similar to like a DJ gig that I would do, where I just play a verse, go to the next song, go to the next song, cut, 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 cut. And Josh is a musician at heart and a public enemy fan. So, and as an editor, he rarely gets those moments to really like to show his gifts under him. So Josh Pearson is a godsend. Uh, a hell of an editor. Love him to death. How did you find the right balance of performances to other other storytelling? Because it's not a straight up concert film. You know, uh, time, numbers, and time are are the star of the film. Um, even the narrative of the film, like how could this film has set you know four plus decades in someone's basement without being open once and time. Um, the, the number of songs like, okay, I got 40 hours of footage and I'm only using 15% of this footage time. Um, and most importantly, when we started. So in 2017, 2018, I'm thinking, all right, 
It should be about 90 minutes, eh, 17 songs. What order do they go in? So I'm thinking in terms of like a showrunner. Um, and it's really not until 2018, 2019, in which the first opening of that door is, do we get commentary from people who were there? You know, do we ask the artists that were there themselves, like what their thoughts were? Because I had a lot of questions. Like in addition to, is Black Erasure that easy? Um, which is the first question I had. There were a lot of other technical questions, like how do, how, how does 15 microphones capture this moment? Um, what were what were the cover songs of the day? God, I, I didn't realize that there were so many Beatles covers for, for soul artists back in the day. Um, not to mention things like, you know, for me, uh, it's it, to, to get the commentary, first of all, it, it validates those who went there because their, their whole entire story was that no one ever believed us when we told them this happened. And again, I didn't believe that the, I didn't believe the producers when they told me, here's the hard drive footage. I still didn't believe them because again, I Googled it, nothing was there. So it didn't happen. So what are you guys really trying to like, what are you guys really trying to tell me? Um, yeah. And, and so once we got the perspective of, especially starting with uh, Musa Jackson, who starts and ends the film, I was highly dismissive of him uh, when he first walked in. I was like, well, this guy's like 12 years old. Like, he doesn't look like he's 70. What does he remember? And uh, he was five years old. Uh, get out of here. You know, I, we didn't show him any foot, anything. We showed him no pictures, no nothing. It was just sat him down. Okay, tell us what you know. And he just started spinning and spinning and spinning about like, you know, what it was like. And he was accurate in all of his descriptions. And there was nothing on the internet for him to cheat. Like, he really knew this. And once we showed him the footage, and he really, that really triggered an emotional chamber out of him. Like, finally, people can believe me when I told him I went to this thing. And how, like, this was his first memory in life. Then suddenly it was like, okay, we we have to do this a lot. And then when Marilyn McCoo did the same thing, that we really dove in. And then uh, there's a moment in Stevie Wonder's performance that wound up on the cutting room floor, but his uh, musical director, Gene Keys, they, they had this little like Abbott and Costello, uh, spy versus spy, good cop, bad cop, you know, Gene Key as Dave Seville and, and Stevie Wonder as Alvin and the Chipmunks like comedy thing going on. And there's a moment where Gene uh, rags on Stevie about singing love songs in Harlem. And meanwhile, man's on the moon and the audience starts to boo. And we're like, wait, the audience is booing. We didn't know that happened. Like we have no context whatsoever. So looking at this footage, it's like, well, wait, if the audience is booing, should we look that up? So thus, that's why we had to that the moon. Like we wouldn't have known that if we didn't hear the audience say those things. And so, I mean, as a result, once we started editing in early 2020, especially after March 2020, time again decided to to, to be the really the the, the writer and the the screenplay author of of this of this project. And the next thing you know, um, the footage that we're editing 
looks exactly like the footage that I'm watching on MSNBC and what's happening post George Floyd, post Breonna Taylor, all this. And then suddenly, uh, you know, I, I will say that this film pretty much wrote itself because it, it mirrored, it wasn't lost on us that what we were editing was the exact mirror of what happened 50 years ago. Even in the editing, in my original version, I will say that Precious Lord with Mahalia and Mavis, that moment ended my original film. Nina Simone was in the middle of that film. And it didn't, as, as amazing as those, you, anyone that you ask will pretty much tell you like the, the Nina Simone performance and the Mavis Staples, Mahalia Jackson performance were the highlights of the film. Yet in those positions, it did neither of them justice. You switch those positions and you have Nina in, in that moment and Mavis in the middle with Mahalia. And suddenly this film became more urgent than ever because it's mirroring what we're feeling right now. Like you have to end it on Nina Simone because Nina Simone is where we are now in 2020 and this, in this decade right now that we're in. Well, it definitely makes a huge impact. Uh, I, I want to ask, in what ways did directing your first film stretch you the most as an artist? Did it feel like a natural evolution for you or, or did it feel like jumping into a new world? This stretched me as a human being. Um, this, like I think every human being has uh, a BC and an AD moment in their life where you think of the dark ages and the light ages. This movie winds up doing that for me. Um, you know, and again, like having written creativity books um, and talked about, you know, having no fear and creativity. Um, I, I was shocked at myself and even in reflecting, I was shocked at how fearful I was and how uncomfortable I was. But now I realize that, you know, being uncomfortable and having that sort of nervousness is necessary for growth. Um, so I will say that, yes, even as, even as a, a, uh, uh, as a creator, this film did a lot for me. Um, for starters, you know, uh, again, when the pandemic started, my girlfriend and I we're fortunate enough to quarantine uh, with some friends of ours on their farm, upstate New York. Um, so now the world's shut down. New York is quiet as a mouse. And I'm in the countryside with a bunch of chickens and it's dead silent, you know, far away from the hustle and bustle of the city and the panic of people. Um, and I think that silent, that silence that I went through from like March really until when did, when did I step back in my apartment, maybe September, October. So just for that whole period of silence and really just having uh, space to, to, to be creative and, and to listen to my thoughts. Um, I realized like all the things I used to laugh at um, about my industry friends that, you know, we have a place in a cabin up, you know, upstate. And I never understood like authors that like traveled there to, you know, I need the quiet. I hated the idea of like not having a, a, a 24 hour pharmacy down the street at my disposal or like, what am I going to do when I run out of toilet paper? 
um, I now realize that sort of peace and calm is necessary for creativity. So it's almost like now I can't even see myself without that environment. So the very first thing that I did um, sort of at the end of 2020 was I got me a farm. So <laughs> to be honest, when I, when I asked you that question, I didn't think the answer was going to end with, I bought a farm, but it's great. <laughs> yeah. I, I, the 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 very things that I used to laugh at and resist, I absolutely dove in headstrong, and I can't even imagine life without it. You know, so when I work on these next, you know, I, I'll pretty much be occupied for the next decade or so directing movies. Um, yeah, I want that the same exact environment, that same exact calm and and peacefulness. Don't you know that you're a grown up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Well, that was going to be my last question for you. You've got your first film under your belt. Obviously, very successful, critically acclaimed. Congratulations on all, all the success of the movie. Thank you. So do, do you have an itch to direct more? Is this, is this going to be a, a, a new career path here? I'm going to tell you how weird manifestation is. Um, directing, uh, at the time we were editing Sly and the Family Stone, one of the burning questions in my head was, like, I know how this is going to turn out. I know that this is a dress rehearsal for Woodstock. And when he does Woodstock, he's going to be a household name. And then when he's a household name, depending on who you ask, it either, I say it kind of went to hell. And there's a lot of questions I have about Sly's life 10 days after the Harlem Cultural Festival. And really, such a victorious moment for him will actually wind up being his undoing uh, because the album that results in the big statement after Woodstock is one of the most painful 41 minutes ever recorded uh, to tape, which is there's a riot going on, a very painful, a very dark, sad, um, it's like a reality show. It's like driving past a car accident and you can't look away. Um, 
Yes, and it's beautiful. It's it's a funk record. It's the first funk record, like for all the technical accolades of oh, the first drum machines and da da da, da. and the, the musical elements we use to this day. He innovated, but it's also someone falling on their sword and and slowly bleeding, and you can't do anything to stop it. And I just obsessed over what was in Sly's mind state the second he gets off that stage at the Summer of Soul and goes into what should be the, the most glorious victory lap of his life, which is Woodstock, what happened? And three days later, out the blue, Common calls me and says, hey, man, uh, I hear you directing that uh, that Black Woodstock film. Is that true? And I was like, yeah. He says, yo, um, I don't know if you know this, but I got the Sly and the Family Stone rights, man. Like, we want to do a documentary on them. You, you want to do that after this? And I was like, yo. I just said that someone needs to do a documentary. So we're doing Sly and the Family Stone right now and amongst some other projects that I can't name right now. But yeah, Sly's next. That's awesome. Ever think a, a narrative feature uh, is in your future? We are. <laughs> uh, that's in the conversation as well. It's It's all about me getting out of my fear zone and really stepping into stepping into my adulthood yes that's awesome well quest thank you so much for this film best of luck with the future of this film and, and your future projects thank you very much i appreciate it what time is it you will not be able to stay home brother you will not be able to plug in turn on and cop out you will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised the revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Well, Josh, thanks so much for chatting with me today about your role as editor of Summer of Soul. My pleasure. So I spoke with Questlove, and he described you as, I've got a few quotes here, described you as a godsend, <laughs> uh, as a, a musician at heart, and a public enemy fan. And he said all of those things were, were vital to you being able to cut Summer of Soul. So what was it like partnering with, with Questlove on this project? I mean, for me, it was a, a kind of a, it was kind of a dream come true because I, you know, had actually developed this. I used to edit all these very um, rhythmic, syncopated kind of video art, uh, music videos, essentially, way back in the 90s. Uh, I was uh, part of a group called Emergency Broadcast Network, or EBN. And uh, we would do these cut up music videos using news footage and Dan Rather and uh, Bill Clinton and, uh, you know, all, all kinds of stuff from CNN and the first Gulf War. And um, I developed this sort of syncopated style. Uh, but then uh, in the subsequent years of editing more conventional documentary films, I wasn't I've never really been able to use that style in, in a, a film. And so this is really the first time in, you know, 20, 25 years of cutting documentary stuff that I've been able to kind of deploy that syncopated rhythmic style. So it was a huge amount of fun. Um, and, uh, yet, like I said, you know, Questlove is the perfect director for this because he's a DJ. And so I kind of felt like I want to be, I want to be the turntables for 
the director to play. And so, you know, I, I just was like, all right, this is a Questlove DJ set. How would that look? How would that sound? And that's kind of how I approached it. I really like that a lot. Be the turntables for the uh, for the DJ yeah. movie. That's great. Yeah. Um, and and why Public Enemy? Why did he specify that you needed to be a Public Enemy fan to edit this documentary? Well, he and Joseph Patel, the producer, both uh, were very much like, "Wow, this movie's got to be thick," you know. So Public Enemy, famously, the production team, the Bomb Squad, uh, you know, they. I became a huge fan when they first kind of hit back in the 90s uh, and actually they were very influential to the work back then that we were doing an emergency broadcast network. It's just that thick mix with all kinds of samples and little sound bites popping in and just the energy and the, the you know, this kind of wall of sound effect. And we kind of, uh, as we started getting into the nitty gritty on this film, we realized, well, we wanted to get in so much political context, socio-political stuff from news archival, uh, and also the interviews from the attendees and also the activists who were in the film. But we also want to let, you know, have parts where the music can breathe, but then we need to kind of wedge this other stuff in at some point. And so, you know, there's just moments in there where I think it just feels like a, a thick mix uh, that, you know, there's a lot going on and, but it's also funky and it's moving and it's rhythmic and, uh, you know, it's, it's musical essentially. Trying to approach the archival chunks as an integral part of the music was, was key. And uh, yeah, I think that's what was meant by the Bomb Squad reference. It's thick. I mean, there's so much footage that you had to sift through, 40 hours of footage uh, on top of interviews and, and other uh, footage that you weaved in. Where do you get started? I know, I know Questlove had, you know, plenty of thoughts and outlines, but when you get down to start cutting this thing, yeah. where do you start? Well, I mean, we, again, Questlove and Joseph and I, um, we, you know, sat in the room in, and, uh, started putting, you know, note cards on the wall and trying to figure out a structure for this thing. And Questlove already had very strong ideas about what songs he wanted to feature from each artist. Um, and so I really personally did not have to look through all 40 hours of footage. Questlove took care of that for me. He had already been watching it over and over again on a loop, as he said. Um, and so really, I, you know, there was kind of a loose structure when I got involved. Of course, you know, the, the film had been in production for months before I came on as editor because the assistant was loading everything and they were having the, all the footage ingested. And uh, so by the time I, I came on, you know, they had a pretty good idea of what they wanted to do. And so, you know, I first started on the songs that we knew we wanted to feature. But, you know, if one song didn't happen to work out, maybe we go with a different song. So everyone kind of uh, got, a, got a few picks in the mix there. Uh, like the song, uh, the Chambers Brothers song um, that starts the whole film kind of, uh, that was not in the original list. And I was like, oh, wait, what about this song? So as I work over the first few weeks of working on it, 
I start with the songs that were originally identified as we definitely want to use these, but then inevitably I'll, I'll skip around through each artist's set and see what else they do and be like, oh, wow, that's cool. So, you know, everyone got a few tracks in the final mix there. Yeah. How, how long were some of your initial cuts? Like kind of what were the, what were the big stages of long cuts? Yeah, I mean, I think we finally had a, a sort of a contiguous rough cut that was like three hours long at one point, which was like, after working on the film for maybe six or seven months, uh, which of course, you know, we started working on the film fall of 2019 and then lockdown hit. And so all of the production got slowed down. We had gotten a bunch of interviews. Uh, we still had yet to get a bunch of interviews. Um, and so we did have some extra time in there and that gave me an opportunity to do a deeper dive into the archival. Uh, but, you know, I'd say by July, we finally had a rough cut that was a contiguous cut that, you know, we had a rare post lockdown in-person screening because uh, I'd been working at home. Everyone was at home by that point. So we all went into New York to the radical media offices, of myself and Questlove and Joseph and watched it down and that was the first you know that was like our only in-person watch down until it got to the mix and the color correct wow um everything else was done online you know i i've heard you tell a story in the other interviews or, or talk about how you had no iso reels can you Correct. tell 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 us more about that and and also how how that limitation affected your rhythm that you talked about uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting because there were initially people were a little concerned about all the cross dissolves and, you know, because cross dissolves have become kind of a dirty word in the, I don't say starting in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. <laughs> I remember some of my early jobs trying to work some cross dissolves in there and getting slapped down, you know, they were not allowed. Um, so... But there really was not much we could do because as you had just, as you said, there were no ISO reels from each of the five cameras that were shooting. As far as we know, uh, they did a live mix down to tape with a switcher and that was it. Uh, there were, we found a couple of ISO reels, but not nearly enough to provide ISO reels. And in that case, we only found one ISO reel from, of one angle. Um, so, you know, I would definitely do cheats where I'd take shots from other parts of the same artist set. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a couple spots where, uh, you know, so I would cheat I, that way to, to, to try to cover some bad camera stuff uh, or some really egregious cross dissolving. Uh, and, uh, I, even within an artist's song, uh, you know, we're, we, we had to condense almost every single song. So there were always unused chunks of that artist doing their song and often choruses are the same. So if it's a repeated chorus, I can pull a shot from the, the excluded chunk. Uh, and, you know, I did that a lot with the first line of the family stone song, you know, we, I condensed it down and uh, used chunks of footage from the unused parts to sort of spice it up a little, make it a little cuttier. Uh, and then like in the Gladys Knight and the Pips track, Heard It Through the Grapevine, uh, the first, you know, 
20 seconds of that song, they were having some kind of problem, obviously. So there was only one angle. It was just a wide shot and the camera was like bouncing up and down. It just looked terrible, but we knew we wanted to use that song. So I basically had to go and cheat shots from other performances uh, of other songs, you know, so it's sort of like find a song that has a similar tempo and shoot, you know, shots from the back of the stage. Luckily, there was somebody at the back of the stage shooting out, so their backs were turned, so you can't see them, what they're singing. And, you know, luckily the Pips dance moves happened to sync up, so there was some cheating that went on, yes, for sure. But then there were other spots where people have complimented me on like, oh, I love that part of that Nina Simone song where it's just this dissolve between her face and the guitar player. Uh, like I did not do, I had nothing to do with that. I had no choice. It's That's particularly funny to me, that part in the Backlash Blues, the first song that she does. Uh, there's a part where I swear to God, it seems like the Whoever was working the mixer must have just like stepped away to have a cigarette break because he and he left it at 50% between Nina's face and a tight shot of the guitar player because it just hangs there for like, you know, almost two solid minutes. Uh, it was kind of funny, but, uh, you know, it works. And uh, I like to say we're bringing Cross Dissolves back. Continuing that the, the effort to bring them back. Bring them back. So uh, moving moving towards the end of the film. When did you know you had that ending, that 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 beautiful moment with with Musa Jackson? Yeah. When did you know this is our ending? Well, we got that beautiful moment with Musa in his interview very early on in the process. He was one of the first interviews that we did of attendees. And as soon as I saw that interview, I was like, oh, my God. Now I get it. You know, the whole thing of lost memories and am I crazy? Did it really happen? Uh, he was perfect. He was so good. And the fact that he cried when he actually saw the footage, because for him, they interviewed him first and then they brought in the TV and showed him some footage. And he was such a young kid at the time, he truly wasn't sure whether it was all real or not. And then so when he actually saw it, and he, in particular, he describes the orange color of the fifth dimension costumes being like a creamsicle orange. And uh, when he saw that he had, was right, he broke down in tears. And so I think pretty early on, we were like, ah, that's, that's the ending of the film. Um, but it was then, it was only much later that we decided to frame the whole film with Musa Jackson, where we realized, well, we actually kind of need a beginning that frames it up of like, oh, this is what's happening. We hear Questlove's voice off camera asking this guy some questions and you can see that he's looking at a monitor and then it goes into the film, you know, so there's this, you know, the initial question that starts the film is, you know, do you, do you remember the Harlem Cultural Festival in the summer of 1969? And he doesn't say anything, he just watches and then it, then the film plays and then at the end you see his reaction. So he was perfect, that guy. Get that guy an agent. <laughs> it really is a, such a perfect bookends for the film. Uh, yeah, yeah, incredible. Uh, BAFTA released their long lists for their awards. Uh, I and saw that, yeah. Summer of Soul made their documentary list, as expected. Uh, but you also landed on their long list for best editing. So congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Why yeah. do you think documentary editing doesn't get as much awards love? You know, I, I, unless I'm mistaken, I believe Woodstock 
is the only documentary nominated for uh, the Academy Award for editing. Um, Ironically, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so why why do you think yeah if documentaries just don't get as much editing awards love? I do not know. I guess because feature films are just more popular. Sure. I mean, I think more people in the Academy probably go to see more regular old feature films. Hey, I mean, I like feature films too. But it is interesting that oftentimes in features, you know, some might, for certain films, uh, you know, the editing is supposed to be invisible. You know, you're not supposed to notice it. It's supposed to be kind of just telling the story and you're, you know, you're supposed to be so in, in it that you, don't, you, you know, sometimes noticing a style can take you out of it, particularly in a scripted feature where you're trying to suspend disbelief. Um, so, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've seen, I saw Hollywood Reporter list uh, editorial uh, I forget the author's name, but he's he's made he consults with Academy members and he has his picks of who might get even an Academy Award editing. I did make his list, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see if we can trump Woodstock. Um, <laughs> I someone told me that it was Woodstock and also Hoop Dreams. Oh, did that make it? It's, it's possible. I so, but then I looked it up and I, I didn't find anything, so I wasn't sure. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I may not be correct on that, but I know at least it's very rare and it's, it's, it's just kind of crazy considering how I know vital. I mean, I mean, yes. of course, editing is vital to every film, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a different beast in documentaries for totally. sure. Well, Josh, one more question before I let you go. Uh, I've heard you speak in other interviews about your, your deep love for history. You're a history buff, reads yes. tons of nonfiction books. Why do you think, or how do you think this passion makes you such a good editor of documentaries? Uh, I mean, I do particularly love, you know, I love nonfiction, uh, history or not, you know, even current, you know, current day politics, sociology, whatever you want to call it. But um, yeah, I don't know. There's something that's just oftentimes the truth is stranger than fiction, you know? I mean, particularly in history, it's like you can't believe some of the stuff that went on, <laughs> whether it's the Roman Empire or the Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. Um, you know, it, it, it's, I just love it. And uh, so, yeah, every project I do, I kind of do a deep dive on the subject before I start or while I'm working on it, you know, I'll read books about it. Um, and uh, it just, it, it, cause it fascinates me, you know, the, the real world fascinates me. And um, I do love the late sixties period of, uh, archival footage as well. Like I, I worked on a, I worked on one of my favorite jobs is a thing called Robert Kennedy, uh, Bobby Kennedy for president, which is on Netflix. It's a four part series about kind of basically cradle to grave uh, thing about Bobby Kennedy. And that was just fantastic because we just did a huge deep dive in archival and there's just something really cool about the, film quality of the late 60s you know it's color but it's film it's 16 millimeters so it's kind of grainy it's got a beautiful quality to it and it still has that kind of rare quality where you know that it was hard to get you know 50 years from now when people are making documentaries about this period 
there's I don't know how you know there's going to be so much footage <laughs> or does it all get thrown out I don't know you know I don't know if news I don't know if CNN and the major networks delete stuff sooner than they would have back then but uh I do love the late 60s period and the Bobby Kennedy show took me up through 1968 when he was assassinated and King is assassinated in the same year so when this project came along, the working title was 1969. And I thought, oh, this is like the perfect follow up. So hopefully the next few projects I'll be working into the 1970s and, and beyond. Well, whatever your next project is, I'm excited to see it. Congratulations on the success of this movie and, and uh, hoping for the best for continued success with it. Thank you very much. Thanks. Great meeting you. Great meeting you as well. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interviews with the director for Summer of Soul, Amir Questlove Thompson, and the film's editor, Joshua L. Pearson, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Summer of Soul has been the recipient of more documentary feature prizes in 2021 than any other film in contention, and also has won the most Critics' Choice Documentary Awards ever, including Best Documentary Feature, Best Director, and Best Editing. The film is currently shortlisted for this year's Best Documentary Feature Oscar at the 94th Academy Awards. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.